Matt, can you lend me a couple of euros for coffee? Uh, let me have a look in my wallet. Here's five euros for you. No, oh, thanks. I'll give it back to you later. What, what, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're just going to give me back five euros? Don't you remember the episode of our podcast on interest rates? I do. That was a very good one. Okay. You want me to return the five euros plus interest? Is that what you tell me? Well, sure, but I'm not only talking about interest. There are a lot of other factors at play here in me lending this money to you. I mean, five euros could be worth a lot more by the end of the day. Currency values go up. They also go down, Matt. Maybe I should be giving you back less than five euros. Hang, hang on. I, I don't want to get less than the money that I gave you back. I want to be sure of getting at least my five euros back. But I don't want to promise to give you more than five euros when it's possible the euro could go down. Hmm. Well, we don't argue about this. It looks like we need to figure something out that makes us both feel that we aren't taking too much risk. How do we do that? I've got it. Financial engineering. What's, what's a financial engineer? Well, I happen to have a very good one sitting right here. Thomas Riveritz is head of the European Investment Bank's Financial Engineering Division. Thomas, let me bring you in on this. Uh, I assume you'll back me up here. What should we do to make sure Alar and I can go ahead with our five euro investment? It's not an investment. It's a loan for a coffee. Money is money, Alar. Thomas, what should we do? Well, um Let's uh, take it step by step. Well, first of all, I think you're you're both uh, based in uh, Luxembourg, so your home currency uh, is the euro. Um, I would say, uh, looking at both of your faces, I would consider you to be pretty reliable people. Um, mm. Given the time span between, let's say, the investment to buy the coffee and uh, the promised repayment, is very very short i would uh, tend to say that uh, credit risk is very low i.e negligible now it's true that short-term investments currently in euro if we think about overnight investments uh, indeed uh, are happening at negative interest rates but uh, you know we're speaking here not about uh, two institutions dealing with each other and uh, putting a lot of a lot of cash over the counter. I'd say let's uh, have common sense prevailing and let's just settle on a five euro loan, which by the end of the day should redeem at five euros. Can we agree on that? Yeah, yeah. That, that's all sorted out. Ali, you can go and get your coffee now. No, I'm not thirsty anymore. Let's just do the podcast. So this is a Dictionary of Finance. This episode is about financial engineering. Our financial engineering expert, as I said, is Thomas Riberitz. He has a PhD in system theory and time series analysis, don't we all, of course. He worked in risk management at the European Investment Bank before moving over to the bank's treasury. He has also performed tandem parachute jumps. Tandem jumping is a way of mitigating risks, Thomas. It's less risky than jumping on your own. That sounds like the essence of financial engineering, am I right? Well, to a certain extent, uh, indeed, uh, financial engineering, or more broadly speaking, risk management, is about diversifying risks, yes. So um, it's better to rely upon uh, two persons uh, than uh, just to rely about, uh, on a single one, indeed. 
Which persons are we talking about when we're talking about financial engineering? Who's on one side? Who's on the other? Usually, it's is it uh, my mom and, and Allah's mom, or is it banks? Who's in this market? Well, in in, in principle, I would say, I mean, uh, financial engineering is just about um, uh, applying uh, math to finance problems and finance problems uh, that is. Uh, problems of uh, investing money uh, affect us all in the end, right? I mean, it could be your mortgage loan. It could be uh, it could be you buying a car. It could be uh, you know an investment bank in the city of London uh, trying to figure out some uh, fancy instrument. More generally speaking, as I said, I mean, uh, it's uh, not only about options. Uh, the history of financial engineering. Uh, dates back further to that if indeed you you follow my definition which is just basically applying math to financial problems right uh, and um, it's also interesting that uh, financial engineering as such is not a discipline on its own it's not like electrical engineering or mechanical engineering which uh, you know you can study at universities uh, it's it's really a multidiscipline thing. It's just uh, sometimes drawing upon techniques in math, in statistics, in econometrics. Nowadays, a lot of computer sciences, um, uh, probability theory, and applying them to problems of, in the end, investment of money. That's been one of the criticisms of financial engineering is that instead of using a lot of complicated financial models and algorithms uh, investors should be using more common sense and i think that 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 kind of criticism uh, became very prominent after the the, the last financial crisis which was largely Indeed. blamed on you know people engineering very complicated uh, very complicated financial products is that is that is that what caused it is it is it financial engineers fault um, okay, you have a lot of you had a lot of headlines at that at that specific time when we're speaking about the financial crisis, in particular the U.S. Uh, subprime market uh, issues that we now all very well aware of. Um, there were indeed headlines that it's uh, you know the fault of uh, the crazy quants and the, the, the mathematicians and, and and their strange formulas, in particular this uh, this uh, um, formula which. Uh, which was set up by 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 Lee, uh, Gaussian Coppola for uh, modeling um, joint uh, default, uh, joint loss pro uh, loss distributions. Financial engineers have always been aware of, let's say, the shortcomings of their models. Uh, even Lee himself um, knew very very well that uh, the model that was used to value these, let's say, complex. Um, structures we can talk about them in a second uh, because in the end they're not so so complex to explain uh, that this model had its shortcomings very very clearly um, uh, interestingly at that time the market participants were happily using that formula to value their securities despite the fact that mathematically speaking this particular formula is extremely far from being anything like a consistent model as opposed to other formulas 
like mm. Black Scholes formula, for instance, which has a very good sound and sound theoretical foundation. So this formula has never been consistent, has never been satisfactory to any, let's say, half-serious mathematician. Still, it was used by the market because it, um, it translated prices into something which people could, could live with for, for other reasons or traders could, 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 well, um, could well understand. Um, the formula was wrong, evidently. Everybody used it. And then in, including rating agencies, by the way, used it uh, for uh, for rating, i.e., for assessing the credit risk of these uh, strange structures. But this, uh, this so I would say no. It's uh, it's really in the end. It's um, in the end. It's always uh, I would say the greed of people <laughs> which cause crises, and uh, not the usage of uh, specific. Right. So we shouldn't formulas. blame financial engineers for what traders do with their work any more than we should blame, let's say, automobile engineers for people who drive too fast. Let's put it that way. I mean, I, wouldn't, I don't want to put away blame from, uh, you know, uh, quant desk at uh, investment banks who have always been very imaginative in uh, trying to actually set up ever more complex structures and valuing them with uh, ever more complex models, which um, were not necessarily, uh, let's say, founded in reality. But in the end, yes, I mean, it's about uh, profit. And uh, but, but, but what are these things? I think that's one of the things that people who are listening now will be thinking, okay, so it's a model. So you have, there's a computer and I put something into mm -hmm. it. But what is it? You know, you've brought some, some books today, more books than usually people bring to the podcast. They, you know, they look extremely complicated. In fact, when Allah opened one of them up, he said, oh, my, um, because there are lots of uh, formula in there that go on for a long time. They, ha they, they look very, very complicated. Is that where it starts? You write some kind of mathematical formula And then you figure out how to put that into the computer so that the computer's computational power can can run this constantly. Is that how you start a model? In, in principle, yes. So it's, it's not about computers. Uh, the um, computers are a tool which sometimes help to um, obtain solutions to mathematical problems, but... Uh, They, they, they do not replace, let's say, the creative act of, uh, of putting on paper some formulas. Yeah, that's, mm. that's But the basic the idea is to try to, to, to give a price to something mm -hmm. over time. Yes, maybe it's the easiest way really to illustrate it is uh, by using the Black Scholes example. Um, the way also I, I, I do it with or I did it with students and I still do today um, is, uh, is, is, is very simple. There is a very, very strong uh, idea of pricing options, which is uh, the so-called replication idea. And the replication idea is very simple to grasp. If you can replicate the cash flow that an option will give you by combining other assets in your universe <laughs> uh, in a clever manner. So if you can actually find uh, a strategy to put together two assets such that at the end, at the expiry of the option, 
these two assets have exactly the same cash payment than the option itself, mm -hmm. then by logical uh, deduction, I would say the price of this option must be exactly equal to the price of buying these two assets today because mm -hmm. they will give you precisely mm -hmm. the same cash outflow tomorrow. And that idea is really the idea of Black and Skulls. So that's where it all started. So uh, basically you start off with a very simple universe of assets. So imagine you have your five euros today mm -hmm. and uh, I give you now um, two possible investments. One is called bond. Okay, so you invest a euro in the bond and tomorrow you get back, let's say, one euro. We even take the zero interest rate example that we started <laughs> off with. Uh, so it's a very simple investment. Yeah. So you, Matt, you give to Alar a euro and he gives uh, tomorrow back a euro. That's mm -hmm. very clear. Yeah. There's, everything's deterministic, right? There is no uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, Matt, I propose you another uh, asset and this asset is called stock or equity. So also you put in one euro today. And let's assume if the world is bright and the sky is blue tomorrow, you will get two euros. All right. If, however, uh, there is a thunderstorm and uh, things don't go well, you will get um, one cent. So basically nothing tomorrow. Hmm. Okay. So you now have the choice. Yeah, You either put the one euro on the bond, you get back one euro, or you take a little bit of risk yeah, and you get either two euros or one cent tomorrow. That's all you have. And now I invent another product. And this other product is called option. You know, if tomorrow the stock is at two euros, I will pay you the one euro difference. Okay, so if the stock goes up, you will earn a euro. Mm -hmm. If, however, the stock goes down and is worth only one cent, you get nothing. Now, the famous idea of how to price this option is, is, is actually just is very simple. I can figure out how to combine the bond and the stock in such a manner that the payoff tomorrow of this option, i.e. one euro mm -hmm. if the stock goes up, mm -hmm. nothing if the stock goes down, is exactly replicated. Exactly replicated. And hence the options price must be exactly the price of this combination of bond and stock. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's 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 the groundbreaking idea. People sometimes get uh, very much confused because of what I add is the following now. Matt, let's assume that you know with 99.99% probability the stock will be 2 euros tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Okay? So you're almost sure. You're almost sure that if you invest your euro in the stock, it will be 2 euros tomorrow. Conversely, the probability that the stock will be one cent only tomorrow is only 0.01%. So basically, it doesn't happen. Does that mean anything for the price of this option? And the fascinating thing about option pricing is that despite the fact that you know that the stock will go to two, if you do this replication story, you will see that the option price is not linked to the fact that you almost truly get one euro 
tomorrow because one would say okay if the stock goes to two euros i'm sure that the stock goes to two euros the option must be priced at one right mm -hmm. because it will be exactly my payoff mm -hmm. tomorrow mm -hmm. but it's not the case it's not the case i, I leave you with this but uh, that's uh, <laughs> wow so in this mm. case uh, but the so, so the option actually reduces my risk so the option should be priced higher the option is nothing else than a combination of other assets in your universe it's nothing that, but you're selling the option to yeah. me so you're what you're doing to provide that option is you're actually investing in that one stock and then that one bond combined right exactly and and you're able to sell me that sell me that option and to you know because you're providing me with a with a more of a guarantee than i would just get on a market with the stock pure stock mm -hmm. you could charge me slightly more on on the option right well the idea or the beauty of the model in a way is if you neglect transaction costs and you know you neglect that yeah, somebody I mean, wants I mean, just, if know, we are just, friends just between us in, in, yeah. indeed then you could do this the job yourself aha uh -huh. you could do and that's what people call replication or other people call hedging mm -hmm. you could just combine the bond and the stock in such a manner that mm -hmm. you yourself achieve this option cash flow tomorrow mm -hmm. so now i can say okay i'm an investment bank you know maybe i'm i'm, I'm better equipped mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. and and maybe yes i, I will take some margin <laughs> let's put it that way but uh, you know, within uh, within the, the the model itself, it's basically um, very clean. Everybody could do this sort of replication uh, to to find out uh, the uh, to replicate the price of the and the cash flows of the option. They could, although in um, financial markets and in financial firms, the people who do this are, as you mentioned, quants, so quantitative mm -hmm. analysis. Mm -hmm. They're also called rocket scientists sometimes, aren't they? So it, it's, it's, it, this is very complicated stuff. In other words, if some of our listeners are, let's say, 16 years old and studying maths at school, would they be able to understand this kind of math, do you think? How advanced is the math that's involved? I would say that uh, that depends. The, the the basic principles uh, are not so complicated. I mean, uh, I, I I think um, the the example with the bond and the stock, we we could even discuss this in high school. Um, when it comes to let's say uh, continuous time models and so on, then okay, integration is involved and. Uh, you know, you hear terms like Brownian motion and stochastic integrals and stochastic differential equations and then stuff like that. But um, and that requires obviously some university training. But again, it should be more about uh, common sense in the end, uh, because all these models with uh, with their nice uh, you know formulas, um, most of them, by the way, not being solvable by means of writing down a formula, but you need a computer in order to simulate, um, in order to get a solutions, um, should definitely be cross-checked uh, against against common sense. And it's I think it's more interesting to to really look at the basic ideas behind these models than uh, to look at the equations because uh, people tend to get lost in equations. I'm, I'm happy not to look at the equations. <laughs> that's that's fine with me. I wanted to because we're nearly out of time. I just wanted to ask a, a couple of other things mm -hmm. that when I was reading about this came up. One is volatility. Mm -hmm. One of the the inputs that's very important for 
I guess most of these models seems to be volatility. What is volatility? It's the fact that uh, a certain variable um, may take on values out of a range. If the range is relatively wide, we, we tend to call the volatility high. And if the range is relatively narrow, then we say this variable has a, a relatively low volatility. But the ranges you include in your formulas, these are, these are based on historical performance. Is that right? I mean, you're, you're basically you take uh, what, what's happened to a certain kind of a financial product in the past and you assume that in the future it should not go beyond that range. Uh, that is uh, true as far as, let's say, risk management applications are concerned. Um, indeed, that, uh, you know, certain financial variables uh, and their historical volatilities are indeed important in order to get at least an idea about where they could go uh, in the future. By the way, one reason why financial engineering, or in particular option pricing, took off relatively late, i.e. 70s, is the fact that many assets at that point in time still were regulated. Uh, or said mm. differently, they had a zero volatility. If mm. you're living in a world where basically the central bank tells you that the interest rate is 5%, full stop, you don't need to think about, you know, fancy... Uh, volatility mm -hmm. <laughs> because it doesn't exist but as soon as you basically say uh, you open things to markets you deregulate that was the actually the big the big issue in, in, in the 70s yeah uh, interest rates start to be fluctuating mm -hmm. and start to exhibit volatility same by the way for foreign exchange rates so also this asset class was regulated it was Bretton Woods etc where, mm -hmm. where, where FX rates were frozen so you don't need math, right? I mean, zero volatility. And then again, they were, uh, the floating regime was introduced. Well, that's fantastic. I I really understood uh, some of that. That was <laughs> much as, about, as much as I could expect. Thomas, thanks very much. Now, um, Alar is going to buy you a coffee now. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. Well, Alar, it's financial engineering, not... Uh, other types of engineering, but I still feel like I'm wearing a hard hat. I must have been thinking very hard. I'm sweating, and I'm you know now that Thomas has left left the room. It, I have to say I was pretty overwhelmed. Yeah, it's very complicated stuff. Very complicated stuff. Well, I hope uh, it was a little bit clearer um, than it was earlier on. I think Thomas did a very good job of explaining it. But if you have other questions which you would like to pose to us and which we could then go back and uh, talk again with Thomas on a subsequent podcast, then you can get in touch with us on Twitter. I am at E-I-B-Matt, M-A-T-T. And I'm at Allartankler, A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. -L -L -E